Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Again, God's holy word. Give your attention to the reading of it. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. God's word. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so then when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and and, and preserve their souls. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. So if you flip through the photo album of your life, what would you see? Well, there are the usual suspects of Birthdays, vacations, graduations, weddings, and of course, cute babies. These are the joyful moments of life frozen on film that warm our memories. And yet mixed in with these happy pictures are a few sad ones. A funeral, sick days, and the haggard hair of a bad time. But when you see these pictures, how do you feel if you reread your old journal entries from these troubled seasons, what emotions did you record? Well, painful memories can often make us gun-shy. That is, the ordeal was so miserable, we'll never do it again. It seizes you with fear, and you will avoid repeating it at all costs. Or the recollection of the trial can also embolden us. You endured the trauma, you came out on the other side with a few scars, but stronger and wiser. Bring it on, you got this. Well, in a similar way, Hebrews stokes our memories. He invites us into a session of nostalgia and reminiscence. And yet he very deliberately wants those memories to stir up within us, not timidity or cowardice, but the courage to press on in the faith. So we have to admit that Hebrews just laid upon us a heavy warning. The red flag of idolatrous apostasy was solemn and a touch scary, in that there is one uniquely heinous sin that lays beyond the infinite mercy of Christ. And yet the heaviness of this caution was not intended to crush or to despair. For one, this was a vastly odious, deliberately purposeful, and highly narrow sin against the person of Jesus and the work of his blood. And secondly, 
only a short span was given to this weighty warning. Note that the author didn't drone on endlessly about the likelihood of this sin, but rather he gave us six sober and frank verses, and now he moves on to a lighter tune. Yes, his tune or tone changes from heavy to light, from warning to encouragement. The possible danger gives way now to a positive expectation of better things for the saints, for you. And the author is confident of good things for the saints because he knows their past. He calls them to remember. Join me for a stroll down memory lane. Remember the former days? And he wants them to pull out their journals because their present issues can be aided by their past. History will be a great help for their current predicament. And he wants them to rewind the clock to when they were first enlightened. Now, such enlightenment refers to them hearing the gospel and becoming part of the church. This is when they freshly came to faith. And note that it is in the passive, which stresses that the Spirit illumined their dark hearts by the truth of Christ, to yield faith in them. This was the honeymoon phase of their new lives in Christ. And he pulls out a specific picture from this time. Remember this photo? When you endured a hard struggle. In the past, this congregation patiently persevered through a period of pain. And yet this struggle is colored with athletic imagery. Literally, this was a great contest, an intense competition, and extreme games. And such an athletic metaphor provides interpretation on how to remember. As a competition, its goal is to win. So, one's feeling of competition is ignited. As a contest, it proves your mettle, shows off your ability. A contest serves not to crush, but to improve. And as a game, it has a set time, a limit. It does not go on forever, but it has a finish line. Indeed, many are willing to endure an athletic trial, but few, if any, are interested in just bearing up under suffering. Thus, this was a contest of suffering. They endured and overcame a tournament of affliction. Now, by itself, suffering is just pain and misery. It lacks a termination point and a purpose. But a contest of suffering has a victorious goal. It is restricted to a set time. And in this way, the example of Christ comes into shape before our eyes. This mention of suffering links back to chapter 2, where it says that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross to be crowned with glory and honor. Moreover, by his suffering, Christ was perfected in his office as high priest to be our pioneer savior. To endure a contest of suffering, then, is to image our Lord. It's the honor of resembling the Son of God. So then this remembering recalls a time when these saints imaged Christ. They were Christ-like. 
And yet, what are the specifics of this suffering? How did they suffer? Well, there's two parts of it. The first being the loss that they personally experienced. Note it says, at times, they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, which first refers to them being verbally and physically shamed. It's to be mocked and insulted with the tongue, as well as to be abused and punched with a fist in the wide open for all to see and laugh. Shame is social degradation. It's to lose face and standing. In shame, your neighbors gawk at you like a despicable thing with hatred and disgust. Shame also hinders your economic efforts. Other shop owners won't do business with you. Customers refuse to buy your products. Shame is no light matter. Thus, these reproaches also recall the agony of Jesus upon the cross. As Christ was shamed, so were these saints. Additionally, though, these saints fell prey to their property being plundered. Now, this loss of property could be formal legal penalties. That is, the law court imposed upon them fines and confiscation of property. But it could also be just mob violence. In the ancient world, if you were tossed in jail or banished from the town, it was common for greedy crowds to ransack your home. A rowdy gang may have robbed and ruined their property. But either way, these saints have lost monies, homes, businesses, and goods. They were reduced to poverty, and recovering from impoverishment can be an arduous task. But this is not all. Secondly, this contest of suffering included them being partners with those treated in the same way. They had compassion and sympathy on the fellow saints who also got locked up in prison. They were sympathetic partners to the brothers and sisters who were also suffering. And as you know, when someone else is being shamed, going through a hard time, our natural tendency is to walk in the other direction. You distance yourself. Shame will make you say about your mother, I don't know that person, never met her before. Isn't this what Peter did to our Lord? And yet these saints did not do this. Instead, they stood with their brothers and sisters being shamed, and such solidarity is vivid evidence of faith and love. Moreover, sympathy enters the pain of others to feel with them, to lighten their load. It exhibits the grace to help and the gentleness to ease their burdens. Thus, as we heard back in chapter 4, Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He took on our flesh and blood, he shared in our weaknesses, and he faced all our temptations. And now Christ sits on the throne of grace and mercy to provide us with timely help. Once again, then, these saints have followed the example of Christ. In the former days, when they were first enlightened in the gospel, these saints were afflicted as their Lord, and they were sympathetic, just as our high priest is. This is a good memory 
And there's one more positive about it. What was their attitude during this contest of suffering? Particularly, how did they feel about their possessions getting plundered? Well, it says they endured it with joy. They accepted their mugging with joy. But how is this? Well, to lose your home, to be forced into bankruptcy, this is a sad grief. It's a lethal loss. It is legitimate to lament these. So then what can soften this sadness into joy? Well, as Hebrews says, it's the knowledge of a better possession. The assurance that you have a superior and lasting, lasting asset that far exceeds what you lost. Now, of course, this unfading ownership is the inheritance of heaven. It's the glory of the new age won by Christ's righteousness for us. The saints, then, could let go of their earthly stuff with joy because they owned a portion of heaven. This is kind of like being mugged for the pennies in your pocket when you have gold bars in your safe deposit box. Take the rusty pennies, for you have the imperishable riches of Jesus kept safe in glory. Such joy and knowledge pour forth from a faith that clings to heaven and lets go of the things of this earth. This faith holds to heaven as more real and more concrete, even though unseen, than the tangible things of this earthly realm. This is faith firing on all cylinders, purring well in Christ. And all of this history is brought to mind by this family photo. The author stirs up these past memories, though, to serve the present. In their former days, their faith and endurance was robust and healthy, but now, not so much. Presently, they've fallen on hard times. They're now walking with a spiritual limp. Their past health has given way to current illness. Thus it says, do not throw away your confidence. Don't trash the good you possess. Now, this confidence is both objective and subjective. On the factual side, this is the confidence earned by the shed obedience of Christ to open heaven for us to worship. It's our right of ownership of heaven merited by the Lord. And it's the help to live by Christ's grace. Though on the personal side, this confidence is also you feeling assured of Christ's love. It's the certainty that the Spirit dwells within you and the bravery to act in obedience, knowing that Jesus never fails or forsakes you. This is not being ashamed of Christ, no matter the consequences on earth. Presently, though, the saints are losing their grip on this confidence. Pressures are tempting them to throw the confidence of Christ in the trash. Doubts are softening their spines and resolve. Thus, he encourages them to stay the way they were. Don't change. Don't toss away the wonderful status and blessings you have. Besides, this confidence of faith has a great reward. 
the finish line for bold belief is wonderful. Now again, the reward here is heaven, the Sabbath rest kept for us by our Lord. And this is the essence of being heavenly minded. With faith set upon glory, we press on in this fallen world through loss and affliction. The reward of the age to come is so precious, so sweet, that it's worth putting up with the shame and the reproach that the world piles upon us. Moreover, this idea of reward doesn't mean that we in some way earn heaven by our good deeds. No, the act of obedience and shed blood of Christ alone merits new creation for us. We receive it all of grace. Yet reward does communicate God's good pleasure. Reward showcases that the Father is happy with you as you suffer, just as Christ did. Even though our performance is far from perfect in our lives, God grants you the reward of resurrection to say, Well done, my child. And this same dynamic of heavenly mindedness is repeated in the next verse. He says you have need of endurance. In the past, they endured well, but in the present, their endurance is stumbling. The strength of their endurance is atrophied, gotten lazy and feeble. Thus, they need to do again what they have done before. And if you think about this, this is a gentle and encouraging exhortation. Note that he does not belittle them. He doesn't wag a judging finger at them. What's wrong with you, you weaklings? No, rather, he cheers them on. He employs them as an example for themselves. He says, you've done this before. You can do it again. He has good expectations for them in the future due to their past performance. In this way, the memory of their suffering should not make them shy, but bold, not timid, but courageous. Likewise, this endurance has a grand finish, receiving what was promised. Of course, endurance is stressful. Endurance pushes through thorns and thistles, public shame and physical abuse. And yet endurance presses on assured that God's promise is more than worth it. Endurance is guided in the present by the future of the Lord's promise. In this way, endurance, then, is how we do the will of God. How do you fulfill the Father's will? How do we please him in the present? Well, there's no mystery or confusion about the answer. You do the will of God by enduring now, with eyes set on the future promise. It's sometimes said that being heavenly-minded makes you no earthly good. But the truth is quite the opposite. It's precisely with heaven on the mind that we endure now to fulfill God's will, which is the best way to be on earth. And yet there's one ingredient in endurance that's particularly spicy for us. And this is patience. We can bear up under unpleasantries, but the sticky issue is how long we can put up with pain, but only for so long 
So then how long is this contest of suffering? What is the distance of endurance from here to glory? Well, to answer this curiosity for, of ours, the author quotes two Old Testament passages. Now, the first citation is a single line from Isaiah 26, which we read, Yet a little while. Yeah, this tiny phrase is all that is borrowed from Isaiah 26. But this thin thread pulls with it an entire passage, and it fits ideally. Remember, there in Isaiah, the Lord is coming to judge the enemies of his people, and so he encourages his people to hide themselves to wait a bit longer until wrath passes and the Lord comes to rescue his people. The little while then reveals that our time of endurance is short. The length of patient perseverance is brief. It may seem long to us, but it's only a smidgen of time to the Lord. And next, to this line of Isaiah 26, the author adds the verse from Habakkuk 2, the famous verse of the Reformation, the just shall live by faith. Yet his citation is more interpretive here than literal. For example, in Habakkuk 2, it's the vision that is coming and will not delay. But here, Hebrews reads this as the coming one, which is the title for Jesus and his second coming. Now, this, though, is not out of line, for the vision of Habakkuk was about the coming of the Lord to judge foes and to save his people. The coming one as Jesus is then a messianic read of the vision in Habakkuk. The point being, though, that Jesus' coming will not tarry. For us humans, it may seem slow. Christ might feel tardy. But Christ is never late, but he arrives precisely when he intends. So, to bolster our patience... The time of waiting is brief. Jesus will come, and he tarries not. Though waiting is still part of endurance, thus the stress falls upon how we wait. And first, there is how we should not wait upon the Lord. If a person shrinks back. To shrink back is to give in to your fears. It's to let go of the heavenly promise in order to stop the suffering now. Shrinking back prizes earthly peace and ease over the future rewards of grace. This is timidity that gives up on faith, that stops enduring. And this cowardice is not pleasing to the Lord. His soul takes no pleasure in the one who gives up on the faith to, refer, to return to the suffering-free comforts of the world. In fact, to retreat in timidity exposes that the person never had faith to begin with, and so is destined for destruction. Again, this is a solemn warning, but it's one that the author is sure does not apply to us. Again, he stresses we are not those who shrink back. This timidity, this giving up, is not in the cards for you. Instead, he says, we are those who are of faith. Here, assurance 
is applied to your faith as he categorizes us as the righteous who live by faith. He roots us in our justification. For Habakkuk says, my righteous one, and to be God's righteous one is to be declared righteous through the imputed obedience of Christ. Being the righteous one of the Lord is a gift of grace so that no one can boast save in Jesus. Next, the righteous one lives, which is the blessed reward of the covenant. This life aligns with the promise, verse 36, the reward, verse 35, and the abiding possession, verse 34. This life is the resurrection of the body in the new Jerusalem. Finally, this avenue of life is by faith. Faith is the instrument through which God makes us righteous and brings us to his glorious life. Thus, as it concludes in verse 39, we are those of faith for the preservation of the soul. By faith, the Lord sustains our souls through the sufferings of this life. And by faith, Christ keeps our soul safe for everlasting life. Indeed, what a sweet consolation and poignant encouragement for our souls. The author declares, you are of the faith. So, we must take the warnings of falling away seriously, but these threats are intended to bolster your faith and assurance. For by bringing up faith, Hebrew roots us in our anchor and refuge. Note here how endurance and faith are connected. In verse 36, we need endurance. In verse 39, we are those of faith. Now, endurance and faith are not the same. They go hand in hand. They are partners uh, who work together in perfect harmony, but they're not exactly the same. For endurance is steadfast and persevering, Amid suffering. Endurance is a challenging thing. It requires bravery, grit, and developing a higher pain threshold. Endurance crosses the finish line of the intense contest. But how do we endure? Well, it's by faith. And faith is a joyful thing. Faith is a gift of the Spirit as he enlightens us through the gospel. Faith works not, but faith rests alone in the person and work of Christ. Faith looks outside of ourselves to hold on to Jesus. Thus, faith draws its strength and patient hope from God's grace. Likewise, faith finds assurance in the indestructible promise of God. Faith is able to keep its focus on the enduring inheritance of heaven because God never lies, because Jesus is ideally faithful to us. In this way, then, faith is the key to endurance. The challenge of endurance is fueled by the ease of faith to rest in Christ. Hence, through faith, endurance is also the work of God in us. By our endurance, we boast not in ourselves, not in our strength, but in the power of Christ. Therefore, dear saints, 
may you know that you are those of faith. In the past, you have shown faith. Previously, you have endured times of hardship. God's work in you through Christ is evident. And if the Lord has been with you, then he will be with you always. May we then keep living by faith. May this faith yield joyful endurance with eyes set upon heaven. And let us not doubt that Christ is coming quickly. He does not tarry. And the reward that Jesus has in store for you far outweighs all your present trials, even to the praise of his glory and the magnifying of his grace in your lives. Thus all glory be to Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest and savior, whose, whose throne of grace and mercy is always open to you to be your present help in a timely manner now until glory. Amen. Let's pray.